The Gist is brought to you by Citrix GoToMeeting. When meetings matter, millions choose GoToMeeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or a tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting GoToMeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. That's GoToMeeting.com. Try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, October 26th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So, in fact, Friday we were talking about this very issue. Andrew Jackson. He's on the 20. A lot of people don't like him. Good reason not to like him. I interviewed Steve Inskeep about it. If you want to listen to Friday's show, I think Sarah Vowell lays out a pretty compelling case prosecuting our seventh president. So what do you do about not just the 20, but the Jefferson Jackson Day dinner? This is a big Democratic event. They're seen as the founders, the spiritual founders, in fact, literal founders in case one, of the Democratic Party. And Bernie Sanders went to the Jefferson Jackson dinner and Hillary Clinton went to the Jefferson Jackson dinner. Well, one thing you could do is what Stephen Henderson did on Meet the Press. Talk about it using shorthand. Speaking to Jeff Jack, he is... is The Jeff Jack? The Jeff... Is that Jeff Jack and the heart attack? So is this a Steve Hend speciality? No. Because in addition to Steve Hend, we get Jeff Jack from Dorker Goo. That's Stars Kearns Goodwin. It was interesting when you saw him at the Jeff Jack last night. And an even shorter shorthand than that, Meet the Press moderator Chuck Todd, Chato, says this. Last night was a big Democratic event in Iowa, the J.J. Dinner. The J.J. Dinner. I see what's going on here. When you say Jeff Jack or J.J., you're doing whatever you can to avoid honoring Andrew Jackson. But why even afford the warmongering genocidal slaveholder a syllable? Why even give him that satisfaction of an initial? Why not call it the 3-7 dinner, the 37 dinner, third president, seventh president? We know you know who it is, but we don't even have to say it. Hey, we're sorry to give Thomas Jefferson short shrift, but you know what? That guy doesn't have his hands clean either. Certainly not living up to 21st century liberal arts college standards of decorum and comportment. We've got our eyes on you, Thomas Jefferson. On the show today, I spiel about the moment of consideration we should give to Ben Carson. And I mean that because it is in that moment of consideration when he really starts to seem wackadoo. But first, the most successful CEOs in America used to be defined by one quality, the ability to make money for shareholders. Then the guys at the Harvard Business Review decided to recalibrate their list to price a little humanity into the equation. Free next day shipping if you can guess who took a tumble. In 2010, Harvard Business Review came out with a list of the top CEOs. Jeff Bezos of Amazon was second. They revisited that list in 2013. Jeff Bezos was second. Then in 2014, they decided, all right, we're not going to count Steve Jobs anymore. Jeff Bezos rose to the top. But the newest edition of the Harvard Business Review has a new calculation and a new number one. And Jeff Bezos of Amazon is down to a to 87. Adi Ignatius is the editor of HBR. He's here now. Hey. Hi. Nice to be here. So before we start with Bezos, who's this guy? Who's this Danish guy with an O with a slash in his name? Uh, Well, I won't be pronouncing it correctly, but it's Lars Sorensen. Yes. He's the CEO of Novo Nordisk. Um, They're a great company. I mean, they they decided that they had one business, and that was uh, diabetes-related medicine. It turned out that was a very popular disease, and you know he uh, that company's been really successful, and their environmental 
you know, corporate responsibility scores are good, and he ended up number one. Ah, environmental and corporate responsibility scores. These are new this year. Why did you decide to include them? So in the past, our list was entirely objective. Mm-hmm. I mean, we figured out the formula, but once we figured out the formula, you just crunch the numbers and it spit out the result. I, I liked it because it was objective in that way. What I didn't like about it was that it only measured share price. You know, it was it was industry and country adjusted uh, share price, and it was total market cap. So another thing I liked about it, it was long term. It looked at CEOs for their entire tenure. But again, it was only looking at share price. We write so much in HBR that basically says leadership is about more than just uh, investor returns. So uh, we were eager to find some sort of measurement that would be complementary. So we worked with a firm called Sustainalytics, which measures what they call ESG, environmental, social, governance things. It's softer. I mean, this is more subjective. Right. But they're best in class. Investors, hedge funds use their analysis. We decided to plug that into the formula. Right. So I have past quotes from you touting your past list saying, quote, we approach this task scientifically back when you didn't have those ESG scores, based the ranking on hard data, not on reputation or anecdote. That was you a couple years ago. So is this, it's softer, but is it is it more reputational or anecdotal? Do you, how do you try to make these numbers as hard as you can? You know... For us to start in the list business at all was weird. You know, I used to be at Time Magazine. We did the Time 100. That's not weird. You expect that from Time. For HBR to do a list, we felt we had to justify it in some ways initially by it being absolutely objective. Numbers, you know. Doing that a couple of years, it was a little frustrating because it kind of went against what we were publishing in the magazine about all these other factors being essential for a 21st century manager. So call it an experiment. I mean, we, we, we could change the methodology next year if we decide we didn't do it quite right or if there, there's better data or additional data we could plug in. Did you decide to change the methodology before or after that huge expose in the New York Times, which pretty much pretty much crushed Amazon as a place to work and not cry? The New York Times piece appeared after we, mm-hmm. had, we had done all this. Was so, something bothering you about the fact that Bezos kept being number one, either that they've never turned a profit, that doesn't seem to bother Wall Street, but they do seem lacking on exactly what you're preaching. Was it niggling, a niggling issue for you and the editors? I did not expect them to get dinged as hard as they did on the environmental social government data. I just, I didn't expect that. Oh, so you thought Bezos would come down a couple notches? You know, uh, sure, Amazon is a frustrating company. They they don't make a lot in the way of profits. They do a lot in terms of revenue. They plow it back into the business. I mean, you can say that's not legit, but, you know, investors aren't stupid. And if they're investing in this company amid that record, then they have confidence that they're building a serious business. So I didn't have a problem with Bezos being number one. I just think this list is, is more comprehensive. And if we get it right, you know, we'll stick to To bring it. you down from number one, and we know... That's where he is in market cap and return on investment and all that to 87. You, you must do have to do. He's paging through. I'm paging his through. Notes. I want to get this right. He wants you, the hard data. You got to get it right. I'm he likes guy. hard data. All right. So Bezos finished number one in the financial stuff. Yep. And that's uh, 80% of the number, to be clear. It's 80%, 80% of the number. your final score. He finished 828 <sighs> out of 907 who, that we had data for on the kind of the softer stuff, the governance stuff, the environmental stuff. Is Amazon bad environmentally? These aren't numbers that we crunch. These these other guys crunch them. I know it had it had stuff to do with governance and lobbying. It had stuff to do with labor relations. It's global. It's not just U.S. It had to do with you know environmental server farm calculations, whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, sort of all of that. 
rounded up into, you know, ultimately a single numerical rating. Do you think that the being number one in financials has something to do with the fact that he is 800th? Would it be possible to be number one in financials if you're also top 10 in the ESG stuff? I don't see why they would have to be mutually exclusive. But in this case, they are. I mean, that's the problem with Amazon. They aren't just a rapacious company that exploits... I don't know whatever caricature I want to paint of some old school company. I mean, Amazon is best in class and so and they're so innovative, right? And they're studied so often for what they do. But we're told that the other side of that coin is that they're merciless when it comes to the human touch. And so I wonder how true you think that is. You know, it's not necessarily that unusual for some of the Silicon Valley companies that drive people at a pace that is uh, unsustainable. You know, they just, they push people, they set these, you know, really tough goals. They expect you to kind of work around the clock. And I mean, that seems to be part of the ethos. You know, is that a good thing or a bad thing? I, I wouldn't want to work in that environment. On the other hand, these companies are absolute leaders and absolute innovators. So, you know, depends on your perspective. And what else? What other companies from the list surprised you when you saw the f- results? Well, you know, I guess a couple of surprises are the absences. Uh, you know, Jeff Immelt is a great leader, you know, the head of GE. You know, GE is not on this list. Investors have not been kind to GE stock over the years, and that cost him here. You know, Warren Buffett is, you know, maybe the greatest CEO of our era. He came in at number 101. He suffered for a couple of reasons. One, he's been in the job so long that we actually don't have data going back, full data going back to when he started, and we had to kind of do some rounding things that maybe worked against him. But also his his sort of ESG numbers. I mean, Warren Buffett is kind of liberal, I guess, as he yes. is in some of his social causes. Sustainalytics didn't give him good rankings on these various areas. It might be something for for Berkshire Hathaway to think about. Yeah. Well, and also I think he gets a lot of credit for what he says he's going to do with his fortune when he dies, but how he's amassing his fortune, you know, maybe not comporting with uh, the lead gold certification, let's say. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, overall, I think what you did with the list is you're making more of an editorial choice. It was probably smart to establish it, to establish your bona fides when you debuted this thing a few years ago, then you rethought it, and now you're sort of making a statement. And I don't interpret it as being cynical. I think that I think the U.S. News and World Report list needs to have dynamism in its list, to have a different number one college every year. But I think you just made an editorial statement, and that's what an editor is supposed to do. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it wasn't to try to get headlines. It wasn't to try to get on podcasts, <laughs> although I appreciate that. I mean, there's certainly a lot of people who wrote about this saying, you know, you know, here's this list we've never heard of. They changed the methodology. Oh, my God. You know, and the fact that Bezos fell a lot, got a lot of headlines, that that wasn't the the goal at all. I mean, the goal, and, you know, editors always say we welcome readers' feedback and probably don't mean it. I really mean it. I welcome readers' feedback. I I get that there's going to be criticism for using softer data. There are also going to be people who applaud it because we're measuring other things, say we're not going far enough. So I legitimately want feedback and want to sort of get this right as we go forward. Do you have an Amazon Prime membership? Of course. All right. (laughs) It's a, good, it's a good business decision. <laughs> Adi Ignatius is the editor of Harvard Business Review. They're out with the list of uh, 100 best-performing CEOs in the world. Thanks a lot. Okay, thank you. Think about the time, money, and hassle it takes to hold a meeting. Sometimes you even hold meetings about holding meetings. That's double the time, thrice the money, thrice the hassle. My recommendation, meet your clients and coworkers online with Citrix GoToMeeting because it's a smarter way to meet. 
GoToMeeting makes it easy to meet with your team wherever you want to, wherever you are. Because with GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone. I'm going to list every device, every device, without the travel expenses or traffic or all that stuff. You just click a link. There's no signups. There's no speed bumps. You turn on your webcam with HD quality. It's like being in the room. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing. So your team can get on the same page and get going. Maybe you could use the GoToMeeting to schedule more meetings. That will take the time away also. I'd like you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. you got nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click on the Try It Free button. Do it now and have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel. Wait a minute. Yesterday, Ben Carson on Meet the Press made a historical analogy. And the period of history he was talking about was the Habsburg Empire. No, no, it was the Han Dynasty. Come on, come on, it was the Ottoman Empire. People, we're talking about Ben Carson here. He only analogizes to two times. Nazi Germany, slavery. It's pretty apparent where he's going to go. When he's talking about giving up personal liberties, this always leads to talk of Hitler. When he wants to discuss a bad American policy, he analogizes to slavery. He said Obamacare was worse than slavery. Now, to be fair, he also did say Obamacare was worse than 9-11, but that was only when pressed after saying it was worse than slavery. Someone said the obvious follow-up. You mean it was worse than 9-11? And he said, yes, it was worse than 9-11. So yesterday on Meet the Press, he was talking about a bad U.S. policy, the policy of legal abortion. So you know where the analogy was going. Look away, Dixieland. Think about this. Uh, during slavery, and I know that's one of those words you're not supposed to say, but I'm saying it. During slavery, a lot of the slave owners thought that they had the right to do whatever they wanted to that slave. Anything that they chose to do. And, uh, you know, what if the abolitionist had said, you know, I don't believe in slavery. I think it's wrong. But you guys do whatever you want to do. Where would we be? Huh, yeah, wait, wait, not huh, yeah at all. As Megan Daum asked on Twitter, in an unwanted pregnancy, who's the slave? It's true. Is the slave owner the pregnant woman? And a lot of abolitionists, like most of the legislators in the northern states at the creation of this country, did in fact say, I don't like slavery, but we won't pass a law forcing you, southern states, to give it up. So where would we be now? Well, since that's essentially what happened, we'd be exactly where we are today, which is wondering about another crazy thing Ben Carson has said. See, Ben Carson has a special form of crazy. He's casually crazy, calmly crazy. I really want to be fair. He's not actually insane. He's not crazy. He just has terrible, terrible ideas that he shares with the reassurance and sang-froid of a meditation audio tape. I want you to imagine soothing waves washing over you. These waves are actually invisible gamma rays controlling you, and they're emanating from large, large buildings operated by a secret cabal of foreigners, swarthy foreigners. Breathe out, swarthy, breathe in. Foreigners who want to steal your freedom. Feel the freedom draining from your forehead down to your shoulders. Now the freedom is being lifted off your chest. All that responsibility, all that freedom evaporating into the air, air the Chinese will one day control. 
Okay, now some people who say silly things say them so forcefully that you're forced to respond in kind. You rebut a Trump assertion swiftly as his blunt assault demands. But with Ben Carson, here's what I recommend. The full head nod. Lift chin in consideration of what seems to be a reasonable claim. Chin begins to descend, and that's when you said, wait a minute, like this one. Let's go back to Obamacare was worse than slavery. Wait, worse than 9-11? Yes, worse than 9-11. He was then asked, what? And he said, it was worse than 9-11 because 9-11 was an isolated incident. Oh, aha-ha-ha. I almost got out the last H in aha, but I did that head nod and I said, wait a minute, how was 9-11 an isolated incident? There were 19 hijackers from all different countries, mostly Saudi Arabia. There were a legion of masterminds. There were four planes. There were concentric circles of planning and plotting. This was about as isolated an incident as the Crusades. In fact, the reason we call it 9-11 is that there were so many incidents that we named the whole damn day after it. We don't just do it to memorialize and remember. See, December 7th was a day that will live in infamy, but we don't call it 12-7. We call that Pearl Harbor because the incident, a series of bombing and strafing and plane attacks, happened at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii, even though the planning was vast and the repercussions profound. So that's where you got to say, wait a minute. So I raised these points, some of these points, in concise form on Twitter. Funny story. I was getting into a much terser version of this spiel on Twitter, raising a couple of these points, tweeting to Megan Daum, and then Chris Cuomo of CNN, nice fellow that Chris Cuomo, I always like doing TV with him, but after I detail the pitfalls of giving too much thought to Ben Carson, Chris Cuomo quotes my tweet and asks, and yet he gains thoughts. So I talk about, you know what, he's leading in Iowa. Santorum won Iowa, Huckabee won Iowa, Robertson pulled really well in Iowa. Iowa maybe doesn't mean much. I say that much tighter. I only got 140 characters to work with. Now, because Chris Cuomo has over a million followers, including people I don't even know, a lot of them chime in. They're pro-Carson. A lot of them really hate Chris Cuomo for noting a fact and soliciting opinions of said fact. One of these people who chimes in is Renee Hensley, who is a Kentucky Wildcat fan, and I can't tell you much else about her for reasons we'll get to in a second. So Renee Hensley opines, listening with patience is a virtue, and virtues in all caps to highlight its virtuousness. So I tweet to Renee, We listen in order to learn and perhaps draw wise conclusions. That doesn't seem to be the case here. Now, I mean, that doesn't seem to be the case with Ben Carson. But maybe Renee Hensley thought it meant it doesn't seem to be the case that there were many wise conclusions of or about the person of Renee Hensley. So remember, I wrote, to learn and perhaps draw wise conclusions, that doesn't seem to be the case here. And then she wrote, maybe not for you. Don't speak for me because I can speak for myself. Mm, Do a dang good job of it. Dang, the word dang is always implied to be in all caps. But in this case, every character after the word maybe was also capped. I tried to de-escalate at this point, but I found out that I'd been blocked by Renee Hensley. Wait a minute. I'd been blocked from following or tweeting a woman whose premise is that listening with patience is a virtue. But I actually agree with her point. Listen to Ben Carson. Have the patience to execute the entire uh uh-huh head nod. And then I think that you'll find he makes about as much sense as that historical period 
when the House of Braganza ruled Portugal. It's a period I'm eminently familiar with, the main characteristic of which was there was a kingdom-wide ban on ill-thought-out historical analogies. And that's it for today's show. Producer Andrea Salenzi attends the dinner honoring Lyndon Baines Johnson and Andrew Johnson. The JoJo dinner takes place in a Hohokus Hojo's that closed. Executive producer Andy Bowers is a regular at the barbecue honoring Rutherford B. Hayes and Calvin Coolidge. Be Cool is a three-day event in the Mojave Desert that has little to do with presidents, but they do a lot of peyote. The gist, you will often find us at the Pancake Breakfast honoring Richard Nixon, James Madison, Martin Van Buren, and Chester A. Arthur. Nick's Mad Van Art. The Nick's Mad Van Art Breakfast has devolved into censorship of sneaker design lately, but the pancakes are delicious. Oomperu deperu duperu, and whoa! I want to say this first before I say thanks for listening. They Might Be Giants is here. It's a Monday. Every Monday we play a dial a song from They Might Be Giants, an original composition that you could hear first on The Gist. And then feel free to dial in or just keep it tuned here on The Gist. They Might Be Giants with It Said Something. Just said something, nobody heard it but me. I wasn't recording, anyway, why would I be? It said something new that wouldn't come out of me. And I don't even dream about that kind of thing. That's not the Read my mind, now I have to lay down Think things over, everything up is down It just said something, I was sleeping and then I was awoken, I'll never sleep Sleep up.